Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for episode 31. Thank you for being here, and a special thank you to my Patreon patrons, who get the shows early and with extra content. Today's interview ran over on time. There's an additional half hour of content over on Patreon. Today's guest is lighting designer Stan Kay. He is head of the lighting design graduate program at the University of Florida and founder of SK Design and Consulting LLC, his theater design consultancy. Stan has designed lights for hundreds of projects from musicals and plays to industrials to architectural projects. Stan hosts the podcast Light Talk with the Lumen Brothers, David Jocks, and Steve Woods. Steve was our guest on episode 16. In the show notes for this episode, I'll have a link to that interview, as well as links to everything else we discuss. You can find those at artisticfinance.com or on your podcast app. One quick favor before we get to Stan. Please take a moment to find us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and leave a review. Stan mentions some other podcasts at the end of our interview. You can find links to those and to Light Talk in the show notes. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome, Stan Kay, to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. It's great to be uh, interviewed instead of be the interviewer, so this is cool. And you're my second Light Talk host. Oh, that. Eventually, I'm just going to get all of them. <laughs> wow, it's, well, you, got one, you got one to go, so that's great. Ellen at Live Design. For some reason, I thought she was going to become a Lumen sister with you guys permanently. I think she is. I think we've we brought her into the family. Okay, so I have to get her then too. <laughs> oh, that's true. And then Anne is sort of in and out, and Brackley is in and out. They're they're like second cousins, I guess, or you know, sec- secondary brothers and sisters. Oh, and before we get too far, I actually want to say this is September eighteenth, twenty twenty, that we're recording this. So we're amidst the COVID nineteen pandemic and also the Black Lives Matter reawakening just for people in the future so they sort of the context yes yeah. could you give us a recap of your life and career oh i was born a poor boy in new york city in 1957 to a photographer um who didn't want who so obviously somebody who graphed photons right and i was not taught anything about light and photography because he didn't get rich doing it and said go be a, a doctor or a lawyer or an Indian chief. This was not necessarily in my trajectory, although that my family took me to the arts a lot. They took me to the ballet and the opera and Broadway and the Philharmonic and the museums. And they said, this is great. You should appreciate this. But they weren't saying you should do it. And so I ended up being an artist, but I was always a tinkerer and I had a very humble background. And so I always had to work. I didn't want to go home at night theater was a good place to hang out. And so I started out in the theater as like a technician, then became designer, then, and that just grew into an interest and eventually went to school for it, a BFA at Brooklyn College. And then I couldn't wait to get out of New York. A lot of theater people want to go to New York. I wanted the opposite. I wanted out. It was a difficult time in the era that I grew up. And if you were small and, and weak like I was and people were aggressive, it was like, I want to live in a nice place where people are 
kind to each other. This is pre-New York 9-11, 70s and 80s. So I ended up for my MFA as opposed to Yale, which I probably could have gone to because my aunt went there and I had an in to that school. I went to the University of Hawaii, as far away from New York as I could get because I wanted paradise and I wanted nice people and I wanted beauty and, and I wanted to be different. The, the East Coast tends to look to Europe for its inspiration. And I had a, a very inspirational theater history teacher in undergrad who was the editor of the Asian Theater Journal. And I knew nothing about Asian theater. And he went to the University of Hawaii and I went out there. I, had, I was freelancing and I had a good bank account and I flew out there and said, well, this is interesting. And I, and I got offered a, a graduate assistantship to go to Hawaii for an MFA, which I did and I loved. Truth be told, I probably would have stayed there because it's a great place to live once you adapt to it. And in the context of Black Lives Matter, if people want to understand how to deal with a multiracial society appropriately, they should look to Hawaii. It is the most multiracial place on earth. Because you live on an island, that also has other changes in terms of the way you behave with the people that you come in contact with. You sort of can't run away from that. So I, it was it was life-changing. That was life-changing for me, island life. And because of family situations and my family needing me, I returned to the States in 1989. Always had an interest in education, so I started teaching, but I also had an interest in, obviously, theatrical design, which I continued to do, and I always had an interest in architecture. And so uh, I almost joined in the, in the early 90s Art Tech Consultants in New York, a major acoustical and architectural consulting firm. I did not take the job or get the job. I can't remember the exact reasons, but they said, you know, we work on projects that sometimes last eight, 10 years before they're finished. Are you sure you're okay with that? And at that time, I didn't want to be the guy who designed the buildings. I wanted to be the guy who used the buildings. So I didn't do that back then. And now, hence 20 years later, I have my own little boutique consultancy, which I'm very happy uh, to do. And you work on projects that take 10 years to complete? Uh, some of them, you do a study, it goes away for several years. And then they come back and say, okay, we have the money now, we're ready to go. So that does happen. Usually the design process is anywhere from 18 months to two years before construction begins. So it could be a three-year process is typical. And, and the kinds of things that I do are small to medium. I don't do the massive facilities. And we work mainly in the Southeast. And I'm teaching, and I still teach my students how to light plays and musicals and so on at the university. So I have a, a seat at the university, I'm running a graduate program in lighting design, and I coordinate the graduate program in design, and then I run this little consultancy out of my studio. How long have you been? You're at University of Florida. How long have you been there? 21 years. I, I've been doing this for 32 years, and this is the longest sit-down I've ever had in academia. You informed us a lot of it, but... Could you describe your demographics? Race for me is complex. I'm obviously a white, but my heritage is Jewish American. So in that sense, I'm a minority. I'm not really 100% in the club in America. I think America is a club. I have like a temporary membership card. All right. So when they, when, when they want us, we're in the club. And when they don't like us, they kick us out pretty easy. It's like a trial membership. And I am, ma I am happily married for over 30 years to a woman who is uh, a Texan. She's an artist, both visual uh, and musically talented. I'm getting used to saying I'm a he, he, me, he, me, they, them thing. The pronouns thing is news to me. So I'm, I'm, adjusting, to the, I'm adjusting to that. I'm a he, and I, I'm living currently my 64th year on earth. Now let's get to know your creative personality just a bit. What is 
a live event that you like to experience? Uh, you know, the last concert I saw was Paul McCartney in, D- in D.C. about four years ago. So I'd like to see some. I'd like to see some rock and roll. Uh, I, you know, I could get out of COVID. Uh, you know, I have seen plays recently. So I've been to New York in the last three, four years. In fact, last year we were in the Netherlands, and I really wanted to see Netherlands, Netherlands Dance Theater. And we were unable to get to do that. So I'm really hungry for some really great modern dance. I've, I've never seen any no or kabuki uh, in Japan. So that's on the list. I've never seen any Chinese opera in China. So that's on the list. And I'd like to see some some concerts because my wife has not seen many, except for McCartney was the first rock concert she ever saw. So we want some more of that. What is a piece of art that you like? My hero in terms of Chariskuro, light and dark, is... Rembrandt Vengeance, right? He's the one. I think it's because when I was a child, my mother from my grandmother had a a portfolio of Rembrandt and Van Gogh prints that were in the back of the closet. And when I was an infant, maybe four or five years old, the treat that she would give me, she'd let me pull those out of the closet and look at them. And when I was a bad child, the punishment was you can't see the artists. So I fell in love with Rembrandt and Van Gogh early on, the Dutch masters. What keeps you motivated to keep working? Boredom. Uh, I think boredom is really destructive. And, and you know, what is that expression? Um, idle hands are the devil's work. You know, when you, you have a birthday and you blow out the candles and they say, make a wish. Mm-hmm. So my wish is to be happy and to never be bored. And I think that's why I'm an artist. Being bored, that's an expression I just don't understand. It's like, how can you be bored? If you have some time, you're going to fill that time. It's like a thing I don't understand. But you you and I will, and the people who listen to this podcast will, because they're artists. But we don't necessarily understand that not everybody's like us, right? I mean, we really are different. Essentially, human beings are lazy. And most people are happy to sit on the couch and be passive. But we, we're not, we are a special breed. What kind of music do you listen to? Everything from the stuff I grew up with. So 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, 60s even, uh, some 50s. Classical cool jazz a classic rock uh not so much metal but but i love like like who did i grew up with like eric clapton you know neil young steely dan all that stuff from my ear and then and then uh who was the guy who was in that the, the great movie about the beatles uh it's Sheeran. like i like him but he's but he's new to me in a sense but he's young right but i loved i love his stuff right um so it's pretty it's pretty eclectic and i'm pretty open-minded so that's your creative personality. Now on to your financial personality. Are you good with money or bad with money? I'm really good with money. All right. Yeah, yeah. I'm really good with money. I can say that unequivocally with a little bit of ego. I think it's because I grew up without any. I grew up really poor. So we were really always focused on it and it became a source of insecurity. So when I traveled 6,000 miles to Hawaii for grad school, I had $1,500 in the bank. Now in 1987... That was a good amount of money. I really know how to save. But of course, saving is not enough. And we'll drill down into that, I'm sure. Are you risk averse or a risk taker? I get the opportunity to share some of the wisdom I've learned in this podcast. Everyone should read the book, Thinking Fast and Slow, by Daniel Kahneman, K-A-H-N-E-M-A-N, who is a psychologist, but he won the Nobel Prize in economics. So So here's a piece of wisdom from Kahneman's psychological experiments, all of which have been proven, the emotional impact of a loss is greater than the emotional impact of a gain. People are more afraid to lose money 
than they are excited about gaining money. So that's just the way we're wired. I am risk averse in some ways, and I'm a risk taker in others. If I have a long time horizon, so from the time I was 35 until the time I was just recently into my early 60s, my retirement was 80% equities. That's pretty high risk. And in 2008, when the market crashed, and everybody will remember, all of my gains were wiped out. I was at zero. My principal was there, but all the gains were gone. All the growth disappeared. And, and, you, were, and you were 80% equities, and you were, you were 50-ish. Yeah, correct. And what did I do? I took the Warren Buffett rule. Be scared when others are greedy. Be greedy when others are scared. I kept buying like crazy. Okay, so I was buying that market at bargain prices. Insurance companies were offering bonds at 9%. I didn't see that as a risk because I had a 15-year timeline horizon, and it paid off quite well. So you're saying you were high risk, which hurt you in 2008. In the short term only. In the short term, but it didn't phase you at all. The, the emotional intensity of that loss is huge. But if you can compartmentalize that and know that you've got... 10 or 15 years to recover that, and you can buy now at those cheap prices, you're offsetting that. Had you read Thinking Fast and Slow before 2008? No, but I had read other economists. I I was starting to understand that the market operates on two emotions, hope and fear. And so you have to learn your own hope and fear response. The other thing from Kahneman is you have to look at the data. You don't allow yourself to be drawn in by stories. Narratives are very compelling and can be very coherent. But when you're talking about money or medicine, or you have to look at data, not narrative. So unless you, unless you really believe the, 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 eco- the capitalist economy of the United States was never going to return, which is pretty fatalistic, you had to have some faith that this is a temporary situation. So I exploited the temporary situation. And now you asked me about risk. Let me say something about that's relative to the anti-racism time we're in and about America being a club. In 1990-something, there was a new thing. It, it sounded like a word a baby would say. It was called Google, and it was a search engine for the internet. It went public, and I had a very small amount of stock that my, I had inherited, very small. Like I had like 10 shares of General Motors and whatever I got from my aunt when she passed away. It was minuscule, but I had a, a stockbroker at Merrill Lynch, and I called them up, and I said, I want to buy... Google, this Google thing, because I had heard about it in, a new, in the New Yorker magazine and I was using it. Nobody knew what it was. And I was tra- and I, said, I want to buy this. It just went public. And the guy says, you can't have it. What do you mean? He says, well, it's an IPO. An IPO is an initial public offering. And we only have so many shares and it's going to our people who have larger accounts. And I was pretty pissed. I was like, what do you mean? Because I don't have enough money in the account. You won't sell me this stock? And he was like, yeah, you'll have to wait for it to go public. And then I got busy, and I never bought the Google till later. Now, same thing happened to me on Facebook not that long ago. When did Facebook go public? About seven years ago, eight years ago. I wanted to buy it at the IPO at 22. A different stock broker, a different stock guy said, "Sorry, we're only getting so allocated so many shares on the IPO. You will have to, you'll have to wait till it goes public." And I'm like, "Why am I being discriminated against? Because I don't have enough money." But I know what it is, and I want to buy it. It just pissed me off. When it did go public, I did buy it at like, when it went up, and then it went back down again, and I got it at like 20, 25, and I bought like not as much as I should have bought. I did very well, and then I sold it when Cambridge Analytica happened. Okay, so now I'm out of Facebook. And this happens all the time. So I'll take that risk. I haven't done that lately, because now I'm at a different 
trajectory. Now I want to lock in my gains and prepare for the rest of my non-work, non-salaried life, let's say. I mean, maybe we get into this later, but 80-20 or 80-80 equity, are you still there? No, I'm not. Over the, over the, well, first of all, with the Donald Trump economy, which I can't trust him, right? Because he, he controls it with his finger and Twitter, right? Over the last 12 months, I've reduced that to uh, 40% equities and then 30% guaranteed and about 30% fixed income. Uh, what's the guaranteed? What is that? So for me, uh, I'm, I'm in a TIAA CREF, which is for teachers, and I'm also in Wells Fargo. So the guarantee there, based on my timeline and the accounts that I have, I can lock in a 3.5% floor annual return. And then there's actually boost to that uh, every year. For right over 100 years, there's always been a little boost on top of that. So 3 to 3.5% on the guaranteed. And then the fixed income with a mix of bond funds. And then um, about 40% index funds, market S&P 500s and Russell 3000 index funds. And then in my Wells Fargo and my outside stuff, I've got individual stocks. But I've got things like AT&T, recently uh, International Paper, things that are going to pay nice. I'm not looking for growth anymore. I'm looking for a slow increase in equity. But that's right for me at my age, not right for somebody in their 30s. You need to be more, much more aggressive. Growing up, did you have a good financial example? My family were all Depression-era babies. So they, were very, they, they all lived through the, the Great Depression of, of 1929. My mother was, was my good example, but my mother, was a, my mother did not believe in loans. She did not believe in credit, and she did have a lot of faith in the federal government because she worked for the Federal Reserve as a young woman, and she bought bonds. They bought bonds to support World War II, and they would pay 4%, 6%, 8%, and then they would compound. So you could have a $50 bond that you bought for $25. 25 years later, you know, after it matured and it was worth 50 it was compounding at 8% a year. That's pretty good. Now, most people don't understand compound interest. So young people, just think about it this way. Take a penny and then double it every day for 30 days. So in two days, you got two cents. In three days, you got four cents. In four days, you got eight cents. Keep doing that for 30 days. And at the end of the month, you're a millionaire. Okay, so if you do that for 30 years, you'll also be... Here's another great Warren Buffett story. He talked about the $30 haircut. He would have a hard time paying $30 for a haircut because that $30 in his mind, when he saw what that could be compounded over 25 years. Oh, that's $75,000. Is that worth it? The haircut for 30 bucks when it could be 75,000? So sometimes you need the haircut, so you'll pay the 30 for the hair. So you got to think about when you spend that money, not what it is, not its value today, but its value over time. And nobody really taught me that. If somebody had taught me that when I was 25, I would be much richer than I am today. But my mother did save. So I don't have any debt. The only debt I have is the house, and it's pretty low. I could pay off the nut on the house tomorrow with cash if I wanted to. And I probably will in the next couple of years. Yeah, amazing. When you left University of Hawaii, or is that, was that the name of the school? The, at, at graduate school, yes. I was 30 years old, I think. Well, the, the question is, at the start of your career, what did your finances look like? So I don't know if that's out of undergrad or... If... When I was in elementary school, I wanted an award for good citizenship. All right. <laughs> which I take seriously. They gave me a bank account with like $15 in it. My parents, they would give us milk money, it was called, where you'd bring to school a couple of coins, put it in an envelope, and you would get milk every day at lunch. But if you wanted to, you could give a little extra, whether it was pennies or nickels, and that would go into your account. 
And then my mom, if I did an errand or she paid me for sweeping the floor or whatever as a kid, we would walk to the bank. She'd teach me how to make out the deposit slip and I would make the deposit. So by the time I was 17, when I could get a car in New York City, I had like $2,000 in the bank. And that's how I bought my first car. So I started out with a couple of grand. And then when I went to grad school, I had like $1,500 or $3,000 in 1989. I had that money. So I've always had some cash in the bank. And then once I started really working and teaching, I wasn't smart enough to invest yet. Because you asked about what I started out with. I just had cash. In 1991, I had an aunt, the one who went to Yale, passed away. And I got a small inheritance. And the way the inheritance was going to come was either in monthly installments or a lump sum. And all of a sudden, I had this responsibility. All of a sudden, there was more money than I ever thought I would ever have, and I needed to learn what to do with it. And I didn't know. So I started buying Money Magazine. I started reading. And I educated myself because I wanted to be responsible to that money. And I knew that if I was smart about it, it would grow. That inheritance was about $125,000. No, about $125, that's a serious amount of money in 1991. And it was going to be sent to me over seven years per m every month, like, I don't know, $800 or $1,000 a month. And sometimes we spent it for certain things to get our lives started. It really helped us start our life. But I started to put it into mutual funds. And a friend of mine who was more knowledgeable than I, a childhood friend, said, you need to invest in this company and these funds. And he, he, he educated me. So I started investing that money in the early 90s. You said you got an assistantship at the school, and you said you didn't have any debt. So did you not have any school debt at any point? In undergraduate school, I needed a drafting table and a parallel rule and some lead pointers and a lead sharpener and an eraser and all the things you needed to draft. So I did take a student loan for $2,500 in the, in the late 80s, and I think I paid that off. Once I, well, they made me. Once I graduated grad school, I had to start paying it off at whatever it was, 70 or 80 bucks a month. And it took a few years, and I got rid of that. But that was uh, just enough to get the tools I needed to be a lighting designer. Okay. Through, in, in your life, have you had any health challenges? Um, I was born with a disease known as ulcerative colitis, which was not diagnosed properly until I was in my, man, mid-20s. Ne we never knew why I would sleep 16 hours a day. I was always exhausted. The doctors, when I was growing up, said, why is he so small? He's not developing you know, correctly. Um, I still struggle with that. And I'm on a very expensive medication. Every eight weeks, I get an IV. Uh, and I've also recently had heart surgery for atrial fibrillation, which is a heart rhythm condition. Uh, I'm glad you asked that because healthcare is a big financial issue. With those, have any of those set you back financially? It seems like you've coped with them fairly well. I've coped with them because I, I teach at a university which has a very good plan. But but here in Florida, when I retire, to keep to keep that plan will cost me 850 bucks a month for the family plan, and my wife has issues. So that so I'll get the mortgage paid off, but then it'll just transfer over to keeping the secondary health care on top of Medicare. Uh, but it, at one point, though, my medicine, which was $8,000 a treatment, that was the general cost. Then it would drop to like 5000 My copay for Remicade, which is the medicine I'm on, was $800 a month. My doctor said, you know, there's a charity to help you with this. And I said, well, I don't think as a university professor I'm going to qualify for a charity. And he said, no, you might. So for about six years, I was getting charity based on my income to cover the copay 
for this really expensive medication. And I said to the charity, how is it that you're going to help me? And they said, well, Mr. K, you might have enough money to do it, but it will make, it will make you financially unstable. Right. And so they helped me. And now it now it just runs me a twenty five dollar copay. But that's because I get it at a doctor's office. If I got it at the hospital, it would be much more. There's no rationality to the healthcare system. I can tell you lots of stories about how ir- irrational our healthcare system is. Eight thousand five. And you're doing it. You say once every eight weeks, once every eight weeks. And it's been going on that way since 2005. That's crazy. If you had to pay eight thousand dollars. Well, they would, that would be the 8,000 would be the first, the first number they send out. Then the, then the agreed amount is 5,000. But here's the kicker. You don't have to put this on the show. But what happened was I was getting this at the cancer treatment center, even though it's not a cancer treatment. It's still an IV. I have to get a colonoscopy every couple of years, which people should do, not be afraid of it. And as I'm getting it, I'm talking to the nurse, and the nurse says, oh, Mr. K, you, you take the same medicine as my husband. And I said, yeah, really expensive. What does he take it for? And she said, oh, he takes it for rheumatoid arthritis, and I take it for colitis. And I said, well, what is, how much does he pay? And she said, oh, he pays $25 copay at the rheumatologist's office. And I said, how is that possible? I said, what insurance is he on? The same insurance you're on, the university, Blue Cross Blue Shield. I said, that's crazy. I'm getting charity to get mine. I don't believe it. So she picks up the phone, the nurse, and she calls over to the rheumatologist's office and says, how much does my husband pay for the, for the treatment? No, $25. What? So I ask my doctor, can you get me into the rheumatologist's office for the treatment? He goes, sure. So he writes the script. I go there. I get the treatment. The bill comes back $25. I go to my doctor. I go, how could this be 5000 over here and a $25 copay over there? So he goes, I don't know. I'm going to ask the president of the University of Florida. And he says, so here's, this, here's, the, here's the deal. We have a lot of people that we have to treat by statute in the emergency room. We have to pick up that money somewhere. So, we, so for certain treatments, we negotiate a higher price. That's how we offset treating the indigent. Well, how fair is that? That's irrational. And, and the reason it's $25 over at the rheumatologist's office is because it's linked to an office visit, not an outpatient visit. So because the rheumatologist gives me an exam and then he treats me in the office, it's $25. This is, I've been getting it for $25 copay now for probably eight years. But before that, I was paying the, the $800 copay, and then the charity ran out. You know, it stopped doing it. Oof, that's just crazy because you just happenstanced into the $25 copay. Wow. But, like, there's no reason. You just, that was luck. Yes. Let me, let me say this about Kahneman. Now, he, he does this, all of his experiments are statistical. The thing that most people discount in life is the weight of luck in their life. Luck is a huge factor. Huge. But I will tell you this. I've never seen a lucky, lazy person. Anybody who has been successful of their own making, like they didn't inherit it because inheritance is luck, if they're honest, will tell you luck played a huge role. I, I'm not saying that I haven't worked hard. I have. But coming to Florida, the fact that I landed here and got this job at this time with the resources this institution had and what it has brought me, some of it I would say as a result of white privilege, some of it at hard work, and some of it is luck. But the luck portion, I had never heard of the University of Florida when I was teaching in the Midwest. I'd heard of Florida State. And I came here and said, we're about to start something up. And I got the interview and I, I got, where is that? What town? I never heard of Gainesville. I'd heard of Tallahassee. So all of that was luck. It, I mean, luck is, randomness in life is huge. You know, just to overly simplify, but also not, 
It's like, well, one, you were born on planet Earth. That's right. You could have been born on a different planet, but you weren't. <laughs> if you're in the United States of America, well, you have a country with infrastructure and et cetera, et cetera. And, and you, you had nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with it. No, absolutely. And that, and, that, and that my ancestors were so desperate to leave the pogroms of Europe and get out of Russia. And the only job my ancestors could have was bootlegging. Jews were not allowed to, to, to have a job where they were. They came here and they all became doctors and lawyers and educators and scientists and, and artists. So for me, I inherited an extraordinary amount of luck. I didn't have a lot to start with, but the opportunities that I had, being in New York City at the time, all the things were, were there, and a lot of people don't. The, the conversation about the system that needs to change for opportunities, I, I think I was aware of that, but I'm more acutely aware of it after the readings I've done over this summer because of the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. I, I can see it even more with greater clarity now. Yeah, yeah. Do you, on a daily basis, do you think or worry about money? <laughs> yeah, I'm Jewish, of course. <laughs> I mean, that's a stereotype. But yeah, I mean, I check my, I check my 403B balance almost every night, right about 9 o'clock, to see how it's performing. I check the Wells Fargo stuff. Uh, I, I look at the market. I look at the market several times a day. It's, it's sort of maybe I'm maybe too obsessive about it. I probably look at it too much, but for me, it means it means like uh, you know I've got a retirement calculator on my phone. I know how many days I've got left to the next chapter of my life. Uh, five hundred and ninety days, five hours, two minutes, thirty-one seconds, eighty-four weeks. If I if I do it at sixty-five, but my full retirement age is at sixty-six, I like to keep people guessing. But I will say that let me let's talk about commodities for a second. The most valuable commodity you have, I didn't say this, but Helen Keller said it, is time. Everybody gets the same amount, 24 hours a day, and you don't know how many years you have. Spending money is one thing, but spending time is another. So how you spend your time should be the most mindful thing. So this time with you, I'm enjoying every second of it. And when you say, can you do this? You know, and, I, and I'm a busy guy. Right, David and Steve will tell you too many light talks. But I looked at my calendar and I said, "Okay, I got an hour here. I got a student at two. But this was of, of value to me to do with you, to get to see you, and to offer my experience out there." So, so I think that commodity of time is something that people really need to retrain yourself to. And Warren Buffett will tell you, you don't have to be a genius to get rich. You just need two things: a little bit of money and time. I mean, I'm like, I'm hoping that so many people under 30 listen to this episode I, I think it'll stick with them i hope or it'll at least get it in their brain yeah i wish somebody had told me what i'm telling them now when i was 30 because boy i would have been done at 50 and i would have been i would have been doing the lighting projects that only i want to do I, it's it's money's freedom right in a sense it's freedom it gives you your time back not that i don't enjoy i enjoy class i'm, I'm loving my classes this semester even though they're online but but time is, uh, and money gives you the choice. Throughout your life, have you used a budget? So in my consultancy, it's a big part of the job, is putting together a budget, right? And contingencies and how much things are going to cost and making estimates. So I do that quite a lot for others. Like we sit down and write out a budget or use, um, what's that software that everybody loves? Uh, QuickBooks or? Yeah, do we use QuickBooks or, or any of those things? Uh, we don't. Uh, we're so miserly, maybe, that we always have enough cash. You know, I, I need cash comfort. Uh, but I do, but I will say I do this. So 
For the personal expenditures, we use a personal American Express card. And for the business, we have a corporate American Express card. And so any expenditure that we make for what we call household expenses come on that American Express card. And then the other ones are on uh, the corporate card. So at the, t- at the end of the tax year, that's all categorized for me by American Express. So I just give that statement over to the accountant. She's got it. But I know to live the sort of relatively simple life that we live, it's going to run about $2,000 to $2,500 a month to run our household on American Express, less the utility bill and the mortgage, which are the other, t- and, and the car, the car is paid for from the company. This is a company car. So I sort of know what those items are. Uh, and it really lets me see what my spending is. So there's my budget. I know what our monthly out is going to be because it's all in, it's mostly all in one place. We know that we're about $3,000 a month or so. And so when I look at my Social Security, I go, oh, gee, my wife and I together, we're going to be at about 4200 a month. That's going to cover our basic needs. So what comes out of the retirement pension is all enjoyment money right? Or, or travel or kids or extravagance or eating out or putting money back into the economy. What is a great financial decision that you've made? The University of Florida spins off a lot of companies. Like they invent stuff and they do patents. So TruSpot, which is for a glaucoma treatment, was spun off from UF research. My wife has a nerve disorder because she's a polio survivor. I'm always looking for something, things to fix busted nerves. They send out these newsletters. So Read newsletters. Read stuff that might be boring. There's this company called Axogen that was developing nerve grafts for people who come back from war and their nerves are cut. And they, fa- they found a way to take nerves from cadavers, reprocess them, and be able to basically make a splice in a nerve, like in a wire, because nerves don't grow back. So I heard about this company. Their shares were selling for $3. They were right here outside of Gainesville. I bought like 1,000 shares. And I rode that up till it was selling for like, 25, 30, and then they got bought up and I got out. So that was a good decision. Now, here's another one. There's a thing called private equity. So private equity is when a group of people get some money together and they want to get a company going, okay? So they basically get shares. It's sort of like investing in a play, hoping it's going to succeed. Most of the time they fail, you sprinkle money around into different small companies that are trying to grow into something in the hopes that they're successful and they develop something wonderful and then they get bought up by a bigger company and when they get bought up, the company gets that money and it gets redistributed to the people who were the startup or the angel investors so, so that we think of in theater. So I have an old friend all the way back to kindergarten. So here's the key. If you're going to invest, first, know what you're investing in. That's a Warren Buffett rule. Understand it. If, it's, if you can't understand it, don't do it should be simple enough to understand, or Peter Lynch and those people. Uh, in this case, my, my old friend worked in healthcare for many, many years, worked with new technologies like ultrasound when it was first coming out. In his later years, decided to go into an angel fund, develop startup companies, and uh, help them grow, mostly in healthcare information technology. So he set this up as a boutique private equity fund. Here's sort of the problem in America, too, and I don't know how you fix this. You had to have a certain amount of money to invest in this fund, and the government has rules about that. And the reason is they don't want the average guy who's just a gambler to invest in that and lose the money and then screw up his life. So you have to be what's called an accredited investor, okay? And you had to commit to a certain amount of money over time. 
One of my consulting projects came with a very handsome fee. It was money I never expected to have, but I kept it. I saved it. I had it. And I said, I think I want to go into this fund with you. And because he's a friend forever, he said, well, it's six figures to get in, but you're going to, but you're going to put in this much money over, over five years. Hopefully, then we start selling the companies, and you'll get the money back over the next five years. So it's a 10-year investment. We got this opportunity probably when I was in my mid-50s. And he said, but you have to understand, you could lose it all. We cannot guarantee this is going to work. But we feel good about it. Here's our plan. Here's how we're going to work. We put in X number of dollars over five years. Prior to the five-year deadline, they had already sold two companies. We are contributing to the improvement in healthcare. In fact, one of the companies is working on the clinical trials with COVID. One of the companies actually created a system for nurses to be able to swap schedules more efficiently. So we're helping nurses. do. So we're actually doing good. Through the, through the companies that are being developed. And uh, we've already seen about half of the money come back before the 10-year period is over. Uh, we had one company that was getting ready to sell before COVID, which will probably sell in the first half, the last half of this year. So we'll see that come back. So, we'll, so, we'll pro- so that was a good decision. Oh, and I thought of one more. I made one bad decision. I, I invested in a, in a play, a musical, that had a successful run off-Broadway. It succeeded. It was a hit. I didn't get my money back. I didn't even get my principal back. And it was because I trusted someone who I thought was trustworthy. So, there, so, so that's a piece of it. And then there's some luck involved in that as well. Right. Okay, good to know. Off-Broadway play that was successful. And I didn't get more of my money back. We still have rights to it. So we might eventually, but it's, it's closed. It has done some touring. We might eventually, and, and actually one of the producers has been honest, but the other producer was less so. And, uh, and, and when I asked hard questions, let me say this to the listeners. If you ask hard questions and you don't feel like you're getting a straight answer, run. I will second that statement. Yeah, it's okay to ask hard questions. Now, with, with, the, with the healthcare fund, when I ask a hard question, I get an answer. They are totally transparent. I don't get a song and a dance. When your little like, subconscious is going, something's not ringing here. It probably is true. Fortunately, the other producer was honest, and when we had a conversation, said, "Yeah, that wasn't. We, we didn't do that well, and I wasn't part of that. So you're right." And I had, and that, and that partnership broke up for that reason. I'm not religious, but if you read, if you read the uh, the Talmud, which is the commentary on the Bible in my in my culture, there is more written about how to conduct yourself in business than anything else. The moral codes of Scripture are really about how to conduct business ethically. Because that's where your morals and your ethics show up. And, and I know my friends in the healthcare funds are mentions. They treat us right. And so it, it, really, it really matters. Do you file your own taxes? Oh, God, no. Here's another lesson, maybe for the younger listeners. Like if you have friends who are lawyers or accountants and you think you're going to get your friend to do that, that's a really good story to tell yourself. Okay, I'm a theater consultant. So you have a theater and you want to get some advice. If you come to me for advice and you're not paying me, you're not going to get my full attention. The people who are paying me, they're going to get my full attention. So it's better off when you're talking about things that really matter, a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant, pay a pro, then you are a true client. And so uh, we do pay someone, and I prepare my own 1099s and all that's not very difficult to do. I maybe have one or two people who I 1099 that the most I've ever had was four in the busiest period. Maybe when I retire, I'll have the patience. But right now, I don't want to take a risk 
And then we've had them come back at us. We've had the IRS come back with some questions. And I remember one time she wrote a letter and she said, please check your, your arithmetic. You're wrong here. She's literally said that to the IRS. So having her, I'm happy with that. What does your retirement plan look like? What are all the parts of it? You can't, I can't get social security. Social security is going to play a role for me, a significant role. My quote, full retirement age is 66 and a half, which is actually three and a half years, not two years. Medicare card comes at 65. Health comes then. In my ideal world is that I would like to stop at 65, adjunct teach or go to halftime teaching for a year and a half to bridge me over to, and not collect the social security till 66 and a half. Social security law is really arcane. So for example, we learned this and we didn't believe it. I had to call social security to confirm because my wife is disabled, she's been getting disability, at her retirement age at 66 and a half, it converts to Social Security. It's based on her work record, which was not a lot, so it's a small amount. When I retire, when the, when I retire if you're married, the lower-earning spouse must be at least 50% of the higher-earning spouse. If your Social Security is $2,500 a month, your spouse must be at least... 1250. So in the case of my wife, her social her number, her amount is going to bump up when I retire, which is quite significant. I told that to my financial advisor at Wells Fargo. He goes, that's not true. I never heard that before. But my TIA guy told me that. And I went back to him and he goes, no, it's true. Your financial advisor at Wells Fargo is incorrect. So then I said, I don't know which one of you guys is telling the truth. So I called social security and the guy says, yes, that is correct. So if you have a lower earning spouse, that's something to realize in the future. So, so you, so, okay, so there's also a thing where some people delay taking their social security. For you, the incentive is to immediately take it, right? No, not, I'm 62 now. I could take it. It would be like 1700 a month. It's 66 and a half, which is my, what they call the full social security age. It's going to be like 2400 a month. If I postpone for every year you postpone up to 70, you must take it at 70. It increases by 8% a year. And of course, compounds. So it's 8% and then compounding another 8% on top of that number the next year. And so you should look at the, at the actuary tables and see when you're going to die because they know pretty good about when you're going to die. Even if you're 25, they know when you're going to die, right? They have, they have figured that out, right? That would be a big portion for us would be the Social Security, which will pay day-to-day living expenses. And then we have a 403B through the university and we have outside assets and cash, what we will do, because I have a wife who might outlive me, and men don't live as long as women, that's a fact, generally speaking. Ideally, I'd sign a contract today, we die at the same time. That would be lovely, but that may not, ha- that may, that may not be happen. So I'm going to take all of my outside assets and roll them into a lifetime annuity, but not the kind of annuity that they sell on the open market. The TIAA invented annuities. So it'll, it'll be a 60-40 split, probably, of guaranteed and equities. They will give me a guaranteed amount of money for the rest of my life. And when I die, I can choose either she gets 100%, 75%, or 50% of the amount we were getting when we were alive. And for the children, they do what's called the guarantee period. So from the moment we start collecting, the clock starts. If we die within 10 years, they get whatever's left over the course of the remaining 10, or we can make it 15 years. But if we make it to the end, they get the house. And what we'll probably do for the kids is we'll start, we won't spend everything we get every month. We're not that extravagant kind of lifestyle. So we'll start putting money into IRAs for them. 
we're not going to make them wait till we're dead. We'll start funneling that money over to them as we head towards the, the great big light queue in the sky. Four, okay, can you say the 413B, is that what you said? or what is That's that right. Mean? Okay, that's so right. that's basically 401k for teachers? Yes, basically. And that, and, but we'll take the outside assets and roll that into that, and just, we'll take this one big nest egg and say, okay, we're giving you this money, and you're ca- guaranteeing us we're going to get this much every year or this much every month for the rest of it with some fluctuation with the variable, and we can move the variable money around depending upon what the economy is doing. And some of the guaranteed stuff, we'll keep like 100000 in an account with with them that is liquid. So if we have an emergency, it's not like uh oh, we got a, we got a, we got a second mortgage to the house or something. We'll have some, you know, at some three and a half percent rate, but we can grab it if we need to. What job that you have ever done are you most proud of? One is more spiritual and soulful, and one is more financial. So the background that you're looking at on the screen is probably my first big one. Uh, and, and it sits inside what was once upon a time in 1927 a high school that is now a regional performing arts center housed within what is now an elementary school. So it's a partnership between the community in an underserved region of the country, between Lincoln, Nebraska, and Denver, Colorado, where most road shows used to just pass by. So the community owns it. And the school district owns it. It's the, called the Merriman Performing Arts Center. We worked with a town of 30,000 people and raised $8 million to renovate this beautiful space that you're looking at there on the screen. And I can send you a picture of it. And what's very fulfilling is my vision for what that could be became contagious enough for that town to get on board and do that. And that little children who would never be exposed to the arts and interact with the talent that comes through is good for my heart. That's just how I'm really proud of the sort of the soul side of that. And I cut my teeth on that space. I, I did a lot of that work out there in the sand hills of Nebraska in little theaters that nobody ever sees. Bringing our stuff to, the, to those underserved communities was phenomenal. Uh, and the other one is the villages down here in Florida, which is the largest retirement community in the world, where we took a church and added on a performing arts facility, also in an underserved region where those elderly folks would have to either drive to Orlando or Jacksonville to see a Broadway National Roadshow. They now have not what we call A-scale tours, not the the first Broadway Nationals, but the second-rate stuff. But they get a lot of entertainment there in comfortable seats, and uh, it was very financially rewarding because the client just wanted to do it right. And they didn't pinch pennies. They had the money and they just let us do what we needed to do. So it was, it was enjoyable. It turned out to be a beautiful space. And in fact, I just talked to, um, to Adam Honoré, uh, the line designer, and he toured in there with Dancing with the Stars. And he had all these compliments about the facility. So that made me feel good. And so that one we're proud of. Again, it, it, it makes that accessible to the, to the retired folks there. And the client just um, didn't get in the way. Let, let us do the right thing. If you told them why you needed the money and they understood it, they said, okay, here's the check. So they, they, pay, they paid us well, and it's, it's, it's a beautiful... That's on, our, on the website also. What financial advice would you give yourself back when you started your career, or would you give somebody else that's starting out right now? I'll make this short. Understand what compound interest is. If you, if you got that, you're, you're golden. What can we do, you and I, to stress the importance of finance and saving to artists. I'm a teacher, and I can maybe be specific. So at the graduate level, graduate school is not 
an extension of undergraduate school. It's a completely different animal. So we tell them that they have three years to build their business, right? So that's sort of what you're doing here. So when they do homework, I put it in quotes, for me, you're not really doing it for me. You're doing it for yourself. You're building out all the assets that you're going to need. So for example, I had students, one of the first projects they do is they make a template file in Vectorworks. Get a title block, get a logo, get your layers in order, get your make this thing. So when you start a drawing, you don't start from scratch, right? Because time is going to, time back to that is going to matter. When you get a gig, you got to start working right away. You're going to start building a new title block for that show? No, you got to edit the template. One of them was rebuilding the title block. I said, well, didn't you just do a template file for the first project? Yeah, but I can't find it. And I'm like, so let's talk about file structure. Let's talk about how you're going to store things. Let's talk about a server. You're building your business. In undergrad, you do get a homework assignment and you do it for the teacher and then you're done with it. I got my grade. I'm happy. That's not the deal here. The deal here is you're building a business. Managing your, we make them do a budget. We talk about contracts. This is speculative, but going forward, you guys are entering a global marketplace. Do you even know how, does somebody even know how to find the currency exchange calculator on Google so you can, you're a business. I mean, for some artists, that's hard. Some artists need a business manager. Some people just don't have the skill or the will or the desire to do that, and others do. COVID, if anything, causes you to rethink and reinvent yourself. So you may identify as an artist and think, oh, artists don't deal with money. Well, yes, you do. Everybody deals with money. So embrace it as just another thing you're going to be a master of, or at least competent in. You don't have to be, you know, the president of Goldman Sachs. <laughs> Nobody's suggesting that, that it becomes your, the center of your life. The center of your life is your art. But peripherally, you need a certain level of competency in finance to be successful as anything. You know, how are you going to feed your kids? How are you going to have a house? How are you going to have a life? So you can't just sort of write it off unless you are lucky enough that you can say, well, my family's wealthy and we have an accountant and they take care of all that. Well, if you got that, fantastic. But most of us don't, right? So you have to sort of, like any other thing, learn it. Think of it as a craft. It doesn't have to be the most passionate. I don't like putting stuff into light, right? There's parts of my work that are not my favorite, but they're necessary. Dealing with the financial, I love that you're doing this podcast because... We talk about it a little bit on Light Talk, but I think it's that you're focusing on it. You've got to do it. If you're a fine artist and you want to get into a museum, you're going to have to, if you do pub, people who do public art, they have to manage a budget. I mean, it's just part of life. So wake up and smell the coffee, my friends. You do have to deal with money. <laughs> I love it. Okay, final two questions. What separates those that have a career in the arts from those that never get started or do it for a little bit and then leave and do something else? I think it's persistence and curiosity. One, you're curious about the world. I think that makes you an artist. You need a little bit of an ego because you want to express yourself. You have ideas that you want to get out there. You might have a need for acceptance or approval from others. I think artists seek that psychologically. And this sort of um, creative impulse. I think everybody has it. But I think artists have, are bodacious enough that they think other people want to see what they do. You know, the playwright really thinks somebody wants to hear their story, or the artist really, or you really wants to see my painting, or you really want to see my sculpture. And others are content to be, to eat, to sleep, to bodily function, and that's enough. For us, that's just not the case. We're, we were born, you know, there are a lot of books on, on why certain people become leaders. There's a guy who used to do commentaries about... Um, about uh, musicians on Sunday morning, which is, I think, a national treasure on CBS. And he was talking about Tom Petty. 
and who's from Gainesville, by the way. And uh, and it's sad that he just passed away. And his lighting designer, uh, I'll think of his name in a moment, is uh, a, a Facebook friend of mine. And the guy said, nobody wants to be a rocker that bad and work that hard at it unless they're trying to say something to someone who's not listening. So I think artists have something to prove either from their past, either they had a parent or a friend or something where they, they were somehow a little bit, were all a little bit damaged and were trying to somehow speak to something in our soul that, that leaders are the same way. I mean, I hate to say this, but Donald Trump is Donald Trump because of his father. I'm me because of my father. My father was, was an abusive person. He probably had mental illness. That impacted me. So it's a way of sort of healing, I think, for us, ourselves, through it's a form of therapy at some level, and then it's a form of therapy for society. I mean, if we go, even if we go back to the Greeks, they were trying to understand their civilization. They were trying to move from a revenge-based culture to a justice system, and they did that through the arts, through examining themselves. So, so I think artists are discovering themselves, and in the process, they help society discover who we are and what kind of society we want to be. That's amazing. The ego thing is interesting. You got to have one, but can you control it? This is the question. And I, I'm like examining myself now because I'm always like, oh, I don't really have an ego. Now you say it, I'm like, oh, yes, yes, I do. Yeah, you, yeah, you do. <laughs> let, let me let me quote a great the great Abraham Lincoln when he talked about how he wanted to be remembered. Read Lincoln. He is extraordinary as a human being. And it's like Shakespeare, like understanding. And he read a lot of Shakespeare. I understood human nature. When we had this civil war in this country, he said this, I must sublimate my ego to the goal. And sublimating your ego, meaning you got to have it. In a hierarchy, that's got to be below the surface of the goal. And the other thing that I love that he said, and I think artists want this, Lincoln said he wanted to be remembered, that the highest honor he could ever have would be to be held in high esteem by his colleagues. We all want to be held in high esteem by those who we respect, and we seek that with passion through our work. Lighting designer for Tom Petty? Jim, uh, Jim Lanahan. Jim Lanahan. But, and lighting and scenery, by the way. Oh, okay. Where can people find out more about you? I do have a little website, skdllc.com. It's got uh, some pictures. I even got some of, the, of my theatrical work up there as well as the consulting work. And I, I had to break it down into just eras. It's like old stuff, recent stuff, and stuff in the middle. <laughs> you know. So I didn't like do one for every show. People just say, okay, he's got an eye. He knows how to do that. Anybody who's interested in collaborating with me, I'm always looking for the right kind of work. Uh, right now, I'm booked pretty much. I, can't, I don't really want more than two projects at any given time. So we've got, we've got one in construction at the University of Tampa, a brand new uh, performing arts facility. And uh, we just started a renovation of a beautiful performing arts facility in St. Petersburg called the Palladium Theater. And we have a, a new facility going on at the Sarasota Jewish Federation, which I'm doing facade lighting, uh, into gallery lighting and ballroom stuff. You know, I'm, I'm content with the amount of work that's happening at the moment for my age. The, and the world needs help. I'd love to have some time to volunteer. You know who's neglected? Veterans. We don't do enough for the people who, who protect us and defend us. I'd like to volunteer. We have a, a VA hospital here, and I think about the folks who have gone over and lost limbs. And uh, who's, who's, who's telling stories to them? Who's, who's sitting and, and listening to them? Uh, I, I, think about, I think about the unseen a lot and the unheard. 
Well, Stan K., Thank you so much for sitting and chatting with us. I just love that you're doing this. It's great to reconnect with you. I'm so glad you had a good experience with Steve at SMU. I think it's great that there's more of these podcasts coming up. I think we started it. Well, I think there was In One is Cooking. You've got yours now with artists. Well, you get, you both of you guys have been around for quite some time. I'm now, well, I'm already now six months. You're six months already. That's fantastic. And I think it's a, it's a nice, tight subject and an important one. So I really respect you for doing this. And I think there's another one by Matt Miller who's doing one. Let's talk about the industry. So I love that we are creating this sense of community with these pods uh, and that we're sharing the knowledge and the wealth generously around the world. It's just great. So thank you, for, thank you for doing it. Thank you for having me and letting me run my mouth for, for the, all this time. That was our interview with Stan Kay. My takeaways were compounding interest. One penny doubled every day will reach $1,340,000 on day 28. If you can start with a penny this year and double that money each year, in 28 years you'll be a millionaire. While doubling each year is easier said than done, the important thing to note is that the earlier you start, the longer the investment has to grow. $30 invested at age 30 is worth thousands more than $30 invested at age 60. The emotional weight of a loss is greater than that of a gain. If your investments gain every year from, let's say, 2009 to 2019, You don't remember that as much as the COVID crash of 2020. Stan referenced that idea from Think Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Everyone has to deal with money, and artists are not immune. Don't use the excuse of being an artist to ignore your personal finances. We all need to pay off debts, save for retirement, and make a will. Find the additional content from this episode over at Patreon. You can help produce this show for as little as $3 a month, do that at patreon.com slash artisticfinance. If becoming a patron isn't for you, please take the time to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That will help me take down the juggernaut that is Light Talk. And if you know of an artist that you'd love to hear on the show, please leave a comment on Instagram or YouTube and let me know. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steimel. Producing consultant Anne Nigrin Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu. Music by Chong Liu.